Good morning. Let me uh, say right from the top how thankful I am for those of us uh, that serve us in music. Uh, many of you don't know that they get here early and they practice a lot and they care a lot. So just thank you, Daniel and the others, for serving us in song. Thank you, Will and Justin and Sean uh, that show up early to work on the sound so that we can hear. Um, it's easy to forget the, uh, the service of these folks. So just thank you, all of you, the way you serve us. I'm grateful for that. Let me pray for us as we open up God's Word. Father, we thank you for the clarity of your Word, and we thank you for Jesus, our only hope. God, may He meet with us in these moments. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this month we're celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, uh, an event that quite literally changed the world. And uh, at the heart of the Protestant Reformation uh, were the recovery of five ideas. Five ideas in relation to salvation. Those five ideas were that we are saved by grace alone. That is to say that we're saved by an undeserved favor of God through faith alone. That is by no works of our own, but by trusting in Christ, which is the third one, by trusting in Christ alone. That is in the person, the work of Christ, as it is revealed to us in Scripture alone for the glory of God alone. And we're doing this series for three reasons. First off, we want to celebrate what God has done in times past through our brothers and sisters. We want to celebrate that. And secondly, we're doing it because we want to learn from our brothers and sisters in times past. And thirdly, we're doing this so that we would then, having celebrated and learned from them, that we might then worship God in spirit and in truth. See, the Reformation, friends, was not primarily about indulgences, about transubstantiation, or about papal authority. The Reformation at the heart of it was about the gospel. It was about the gospel. The gospel, as we learned a couple weeks ago, that is the power for salvation to everyone that believes. And so this gospel, this Reformation was about this gospel. And so these courageous men and women, what they did was they started to dust off this glorious gospel that had been clouded by man-made dust bunnies. So it was difficult to see. And so these tireless efforts of men like Luther and Calvin, the Through them and others, the gospel was recovered, set back up on the mantle so that we might see God and worship Him for all of His infinite worth. And so each week we've taken one of these five ideas that the Reformers recovered and considered them from Scripture while also highlighting a figure from history whose whose God's gracious activity worked through. We thought about Luther who saw that grace through faith led to the righteousness that was alien to us. It was Jesus' alien righteousness that was given to us. And Luther saw that that was alien to him. It came by grace through faith. Uh, And it all started, the Reformation started by a simple protest, by a simple monk in a tiny little town. And then we considered last week briefly the French pastor, theologian, John Calvin, who labored in Geneva, Switzerland. And we noted how he helped us see that it was by no works of our own that we are saved, but it is only by faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that's the third solo, the third only that we will consider today. And we'll do that by looking at Acts chapter 4, verse 12. So you'll want to go ahead and turn there. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. And we're going to do this while considering the life of Jane Grey. Now, I chose Jane Grey because I wanted us to see that it was not only men that were courageously pushing this beautiful gospel and recovering this gospel back. I wanted us to see that there were courageous women that were a part of this effort as well. And there are few more godly and more courageous women 
than this woman, Jane Gray. I have been so encouraged and struck and convicted by her. Uh, And you're going to see as we walk through and tell her story that you're going to be struck in the same way, I'm sure. Uh, Jane Gray was born in 1537, some 20 years after Luther had nailed those 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg. And by the time of her birth, the fires of the Reformation had been sweeping their way through Europe. They had made their way to England, which is where she was born and raised. Uh, She, Jane, was born to the sister of King Henry VIII, who was the king of England. Therefore, she was the niece of King Henry, which made her fourth in line of succession to the throne in England. And the three that were in front of her were the three children of Henry. There was first Mary, then Elizabeth, and then the boy Edward. And though the daughters were born before Edward, they were considered illegitimate heirs to the throne in England uh, by the Bishop Thomas Cranmer, who himself is a wonderful Reformation figure. Uh, They were considered illegitimate heirs due to Henry having divorced their mothers. Therefore, before King Henry died, he then pronounced Edward would be the successor to the throne. And so upon the death of King Henry, Edward, at the age of nine, became the King of England. Now, you just think about those of you that know my son. He's nine. Imagine him running England. Uh, He needed a lot of help, and thankfully Edward did. But Edward was indeed a Protestant. He rejected the Roman Catholic gospel. He held to the same gospel that we preach here today. And this is important to note because England had been thrown backwards and forwards by Catholic leader after Protestant leader after Catholic leader after Protestant leader. And so England was struggling to see what kind of nation she would become, either Catholic or Protestant. And Edward's reign assured that at least in the immediacy, it would be Protestant. But the next in line, though she was deemed illegitimate, she would become king, as we will see in a moment. Mary was very much Catholic. Now, this was concerning because Edward was dying. At the age of 15, he had measles and was kind of uh, uh, beginning to uh, contract tuberculosis. And so in the days leading up to his death, at the young age of 15, Edward created a document that would give his cousin Jane the authority to become queen upon his death. So as to keep the throne Protestant, holding to the Protestant gospel, since Jane herself believed by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And Jane had heard that gospel. Interestingly, she had been born again by believing in that gospel, by attending a Bible study in one of uh, Henry's wives' uh, rooms. She was attending a Bible study there and heard the gospel and believed it now this agreement that edward had done to make jane queen was all done without her knowing it she had no idea that this was happening she was not aware of the arrangement and it's also important to note that jane and edward were close friends so they were cousins first but they were also close friends in fact they were so close that it was uh, rumored that they may get married uh it was not uncommon to get married to cousins back then um But nevertheless, fast forward back to the day that Edward dies. Remember, Jane knows nothing about this agreement of her becoming queen. She's then beckoned upon the death of Edward to come to a house nearby to her. And as she shows up, there are people that begin filling the room that are common to her, familiar to her. And each of them begins to pledge their allegiance to her throneship, to her taking the throne. Jane, of course, is confused by all of this, at which time she's told two things that would change her life forever. The first she was told was that her beloved cousin and good friend Edward had died. And the next thing that she was told was that he had been uh, working to make her queen. And so now she 
held the title of the Queen of England. Now, you can imagine what kind of effect this might have upon young Jane. She immediately faints and falls to the floor. Um, Interestingly, it's a strange account. Nobody comes to help her. So they just sort of stand there and watch her. But nevertheless, she comes to. And as she comes to, she begins to weep that her dear friend and cousin Edward had died. And she has no interest, this is an important fact, she has no interest, Jane does, in taking the throne, uh, but she had in, been informed that, that Edward had made things possible so as to make her queen. And so Jane then says, well, listen, if it's the law, then I'll abide by it, and I trust that this is the providence of God, and then I'll lead the throne, I'll lead the country of England. And so quite reluctantly, she takes it, and Jane then is made king or queen at the age of 16. 16 years old. But during all of this, Mary hears of the death. Mary, remember, she's the next in line, sort of, technically, in relation to the throne. Not Jane. She hears about the death of her brother. She hears about uh, Jane taking the throne. She then appeals to her own right as queen. And then she then decides she's going to descend upon the country or upon the city of London and then bring an army with her to take the throne that she says is rightfully hers. Well, upon her showing up in the city of, of London, why do I keep doing that? In the city of London, um, she shows up. Jane finds out about the fact that Mary's there with an army, and she's fine to give the throne to Mary. Because, again, Jane sort of reluctantly took it in the first place. And so she then, Jane then, is taken off to prison. And she's then queen. Jane is queen for some nine days in England. Nine days. But Mary, again, is a well-known Catholic. Jane very much is not Catholic, but it appears that Mary is willing to let Jane live in bondage since it appears to her that Jane did not try to become queen. But something happened while Jane was in prison. A war began to break out whose purpose was to attempt to reinstall Jane as queen. Jane had nothing to do with it, but somebody else did. Her father was involved in it. He's captured. He's seen. Mary then understands that Jane is in fact a real threat to the throne and therefore she deems to put her to death. Now Mary uh, is very known for things like this. She was known as one of the most bloodthirsty rulers in all of England's history. She hated the gospel of grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, so much that she had more than 280 people killed that believed that gospel and countless others exiled to try to flee from her. Reign. This is why she has come down to us in history as, you all know it, Bloody Mary. Now, unfortunately, as I mentioned, Jane would be one of those victims in part because of politics. But those politics, friends, were wrapped up in a particular understanding of the gospel. You cannot disassociate the two. She had had Jane believed the gospel of the Roman Catholic Church, which taught Christ plus works equal salvation. Had Jane believed that gospel? then she would not have died a horrible death. But the reality is, Jane did. And so let's press pause for a moment on Jane in order to investigate this teaching of this doctrine that she died for believing. So take a look at Acts chapter 4, but even before then, we need to look back just before it in chapter 3. Glance over there to Acts chapter 3, verse 6. There we read about an invalid that is begging for alms. Peter and John, two apostles of Jesus Christ. Now keep in mind, Christ has just died, resurrected, and ascended. The Spirit has come. This is very early on in the life of the church. Peter and John are walking to the temple to worship. And on their way, they come in contact with this invalid. 
And he's begging for alms, and Peter and John say back to him, or Peter says in particular, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And the man does just that. He rises up and he walks. Now it's important to note in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 3, the man does not praise Peter for what had happened. But instead, he praises God for what has happened. So the man properly recognizes two things. That the power to heal was in the name of Jesus. right? Faith in Christ, in the name of Jesus. And the praise that was to be given was then to be given not to Peter, but to God. For it was God, it is God who heals the broken. Now this causes no small amount of disturbance there in Jerusalem. People begin to surround Peter, and Peter then takes the opportunity as a result of this uh, crowds that are gathering around to preach the gospel. Look at chapter 3, verse 13. He says there, you delivered Jesus over and denied him. Chapter 3, verse 14, very next verse. You denied the holy and righteous one. Verse 15, you killed the author of life. By the way, there's three things you can determine about who Jesus is. He's the holy, righteous one that is the author of life. You killed the author of life. Note those next words in verse 15. But God raised him from the dead. Hallelujah. Verse 16, by his name. Note that word name. You're going to see it come up a lot. By his name, by faith in his name, this man, this is the invalid that's been healed, by faith in his name, this man has been given health. But guys, this is important. Peter is not primarily interested in physical healing. He knows Jesus didn't just die for temporal physical relief. But Jesus died and rose for eternal relief from our sin. He goes on, Peter does, to explain this in verse 18. God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, there's the Old Testament, that his Christ, there's the promised Messiah, Jesus, would suffer. He, Jesus, thus fulfilled. All Peter just said there was there was a prophecy that Christ was going to overcome from the Old Testament. Jesus is fulfilling it. And he fulfills it on the cross and in the resurrection. Therefore, he then gives the appropriate response in verse 19 to this gospel. Verse 19, repent, which means to turn away. Repent, therefore, and turn back. Why? That your sins may be blotted out. There's the purpose for Jesus' death and resurrection. What happens as a result of repenting of sin? Trusting in Jesus' sacrifice. Verse 20 and 21. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Don't you want that? And that he may send the Christ appointed for you. Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. And so as they're telling this to the people, we move to chapter 4, and then we find all the religious leaders, they begin to come out. Oh, there's some religious teaching on, and we're not around. We want to go check this out. They, they show up, and they are, verse 1 and 2, they are greatly annoyed by uh, 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 Peter speaking this gospel to all these people. And then on the next day, they're thrown in jail. Next day comes out, people still around. Verse 6, chapter 4. On the next day, the rulers come out with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, among some others. And they asked, note the word again, by what name they did all of this. That's verse 7. Now, those two names might be familiar to those of you that are familiar with the Scriptures. Those two names, Annas and Caiaphas, 
You can read about them in Acts, or sorry, John chapter 18, verse 13 and 24. These are the same dudes that threw Jesus over to Pilate. Same guys. These are the same people on that night at Gethsemane. Jesus is praying. Soldiers take him away. They then shove him in front of the religious leaders of the day. These are the same guys. And after Jesus died, I am sure that these guys, Annas and Caiaphas, thought that they had protected their precious egos and their precious position, but then they found out that they were dead wrong when he rose on the third day. Now this was a problem. In particular, it's becoming more of a problem because now his apostles now are filled with the Spirit, preaching the gospel of this resurrected Savior. And so now they are confronted, Annas and Caiaphas are, yet again with their foolish decision to hand over Jesus for crucifixion. And now listen to Peter's little mini-sermon to these guys. Chapter 4, verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Looking back in verse 10, we get those words. You can just see that. Jesus whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. You hear that refrain over and over again. Verse 11, we get it in a different kind of way. Peter there in verse 11 is referring to Psalm 118. By the way, the exact same psalm that Jesus referred to himself, of himself. By saying that Jesus, the stone that was rejected by you, there's the crucifixion, has become the cornerstone. There's the resurrection. New life granting a new kingdom. Verse 13, I'll come back to verse 12 in a second. All right, so how do these rulers respond? Verse 13, these leaders are astonished at these guys because, quote, they are uneducated common men. Friend, don't think that you need a degree from a fancy institution to do something great for God. Common, uneducated men. The men the world does not look to. He turned the the world upside down with men like that and women like that. What is it we need? Look at verse 13. They're astonished because they're uneducated common men, but they recognize that they had been with Jesus. That's what you need. Are you known for being with Jesus? So what was the message of these apostles of Jesus Christ in these early days of the church? What was their message? Simple, clear. The death and resurrection of a rejected Jesus for sin. That's their message. The death and the resurrection of a rejected Jesus Christ for sin. To be received by repentance and faith. Chapter 3, verse 19. Which then led from receiving the grace of forgiveness then leads to times of refreshing that comes from the presence of the Lord which then eventually leads to the restoration of all things. And all of this happens. Here we go. Verse 12. All of this happens. Note the redundancy for clarity. This all happens in no one else. For or because there is no other name under heaven by which, note the word, we must be saved. We must be saved, guys. There's no option. We must be saved. 
There is no, in no one else, all, has, all of this is happening in no one else for, because, or because there is no other name by which we must be saved. But the name, which is to say the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That's it. That's the only option. Salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. For it is under no other name that we must be saved. Christ is the only name, the only one that is able to offer salvation. Why? Because he was the only one that was promised by God in the prophets. He is the only one that fulfills all righteousness for those of us who believe. And therefore, by his substitutionary death on the cross and through his resurrection, we who repent of our sins and trust in Christ alone for salvation have times of refreshing because the deepest problem with us and with our world is overcome in Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus takes our sin. He pays its penalty on the cross. We take his righteousness and are made alive with him in the resurrection. None of that can happen, folks. None of that can happen. This forgiveness, this grace, this overcoming the deepest problem, none of that can happen without the name, without the person and the work of Jesus Christ. It can't happen through the prophet Muhammad. It cannot happen in nirvana that is achieved through the teachings of Buddha or Confucius. It cannot happen through the spiritual but not religious who use Jesus when it's convenient for their cause. And it cannot happen for those that believe it is Jesus' blood plus our own works of obedience to bring about righteousness. Precisely because there is salvation in no one else and in nothing else other than the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. He is it. He is it precisely because of that, because he only only he is righteous, only he is complete, only he is holy, only he is the author of life, only he is the source of all that is right and good, only he has the power for salvation. It is no mixture of us plus him, for we are dead in our trespasses and sins, and yet he is alive, having atoned for our sins on the cross. Any other sacrifice, folks, is tainted with brokenness and sin. And Christ is the only pristine offering that can be accepted by a holy God. That's why he is the only way. John Owen says about a century after Jane Grey says Christ is the meat, the bread, the food provided by God for your soul. And there is no higher spiritual nourishment in Christ than in his mediatory love. Isaac Ambrose says also about 100 years after Jane Grey, only Christ, only Christ is the sun and center of all divine revealed truth. We can preach nothing else as the object of our faith, as the necessary element of your soul's salvation, which does not in some way or other either meet in Christ or refer to Christ. Only Christ is the whole of man's happiness, the sun to enlighten him, the physician to heal him, the wall of fire to defend him, the friend to comfort him, the pearl to enrich him, the ark to support him, the rock to sustain him under the heaviest of pressures. Only Christ, he says, is the ladder between earth and heaven, the mediator between God and man. And of course, this is exactly what Jesus says of himself in John fourteen six: I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man come to the Father but through me. The Apostle uh, Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6, there is one God, he says, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. And most convincingly, Paul also reasons later in Galatians 2, 21, after rehearsing the gospel, he says, I do not nullify the grace of God. 
For if righteousness were through the law, that is, through something that we could do, then Christ died for no purpose. You see what Paul is saying there? He's saying that if salvation is anything other than Jesus or anything plus Jesus, then the means, the grace that God gives us is nullified because we have the ability to merit or boast in something of ourselves. Therefore, if that's possible, God wasted his son. He was unwise to offer up his son, if that's true. If it's possible for us to do something about our salvation. But of course, this is not true. God did not waste his son. And so in him is the sufficiency for salvation to all who believe. There is nothing in us that we can do to earn our way there. And there is nothing in him that is lacking that we need to make up. There is no other name, no other religion, no other vessel that is sufficient to make an atonement for sin. It is only Jesus, the the rejected, crucified, risen, reigning King of kings and Lord of lords. He is it, our good and beautiful King, the one that is able to give life and love to all who believe by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And this, friends, this is the gospel that Jane Gray died for believing. The day before her execution, a Roman Catholic priest was sent into her cell in order to try and convert her to a gospel that was not grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. But as the Roman Catholic Church teaches today, it's that plus stuff. So as the Roman Catholic teaches today, he goes in there to try to convert her, to try to change Jane's mind on the sole reliance on the blood of Christ for salvation, but thankfully he failed. Listen to this stunningly courageous, godly 16-year-old girl with death knocking at her door. Listen to her words. So here they are in the cell, this man trying to convert her. It's possible, maybe not probable, but possible she could have gotten out of this death if she just comes over to the Roman Catholic side. After she affirms the Trinity, Jane confesses faith in Christ alone for salvation The man that was in there, the Roman Catholic priest that was trying to debate her. By the way, this same guy debated other well-known people uh, from the Reformation. People like people we would know. And here she is talking to this woman. And I bet that he thought that this would be his easiest task. And boy, was he wrong. His name is Feckenham, the priest. He walks in there and he, after quoting that Trinity, she responds to Christ alone for salvation. Feckenham then responded by quoting 1 Corinthians 13.2 which says, if I have all faith but have not love, I am nothing. In other words, Feckenham was telling Jane that salvation comes by faith and through works of love. And Jane responded, true it is. For how can I love him in whom I do not trust? Or how can I trust in him I do not love? Faith and love agree both together, and yet love is only comprehended by faith. Feckenham then asked her, Well, then how shall we love our neighbor? Jane responded, To love our neighbor is to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, and to give drink to the thirsty, and to do to him as we would do to ourselves. Feckenham then said, Well, why then is it necessary to salvation to do good works? And it is not sufficient to only believe. Jane then quickly denied, I deny that, and I affirm that faith only saves But it is only important for Christians in token that they follow their master Christ. 
to do good works, yet may we not say that they profit to salvation. For although we have all done all that we can, yet we are unprofitable servants and the faith only in Christ's blood saves. She drew the line. There it is. Those were the words that would mark her grave. Christ's blood alone saves because it is only the only thing that is able to save. He has done all the work that is necessary to bring one to salvation. And because she believed that, she was sent to the chopping block in February of 1554 in London. It was later said of her that when she walked to the gallows, there was no appearance of stress, but only confidence. Calmly walking, she walks up to the gallows. And just before she is beheaded, she's given permission to speak. And this is what she said. She said, I pray you all, good Christian people, to bear witness that I die a true Christian woman. And that I do look to be saved by no other means, but only by the mercy of God and the blood of His only Son, Jesus Christ. She then knelt and began to recite from memory Psalm 51. She stands up. She hands some gloves and a handkerchief to some ladies that were standing next to her. She had carried a prayer book with her. She hands that to a bystander and gives it as a gift to him. And she knelt and was killed instantly by the axe that struck her neck. 16 years old. 16 years old. Why? Why? Because she believed to her dying breath that there is salvation in no one else and by nothing else but the blood of her loving Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who laid her life down, who laid his life down for her to cleanse her from all sin and to reconcile her to God. And I ask you, Restoration Church, was that a waste? Was her life a waste? Was her death a waste? Did Jane die a fool? Was she some religious fanatic that unnecessarily died a horrific death? Would it have been better for her to tone down her theology? Just be happy. Don't take the gospel so seriously. Well, friends, I'll let the word of the Lord answer that question. Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. John the Apostle looks into the future return of Christ and said, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus. And for the word of God, there's Jane. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Friends, in the soon return of Christ, we find that because our sister Jane was willing to lose her head for the sake of the clarity of the sufficiency of Jesus Christ for salvation, she is given a designation of great prominence by our Lord. Friend, you are free to evaluate Jane's sacrifice. But it seems the Lord has already made his evaluation of her. And what he says of her is that she lived a life of whom this world was not worthy. And she will reign with Christ. And as well she should.
The reality is, friends, most of us will never be asked to make a sacrifice like that, like Jane did. Most of us. It may happen to some of you. But if you choose to believe this gospel, the reality is you are promised to be rejected. History shows us that. And of course, Jesus told us that. They reject me, they'll reject you. That's what he said. Plain English or Aramaic. And the reason why they'll reject you, Christian, is right there in Acts chapter 4, verse 11. The builders of this world see us as broken stones. They see us as useless, cast aside. They don't need us. They reject us. Our lives are seen by the world as something akin to broken rocks that are not worthy to hold up their idea of what the good life is. In building their fragile little world, they rejected Jesus, and so they're going to reject those of us that are in Jesus. That is to be expected. Just a cursory reading of the Bible tells you that. The beloved Beatitudes that so many love are concluded by Jesus' words when he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Paul writes, All those who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. Peter writes to the church that is, that is dispatched all throughout the world. He says to them that we are sojourners. We are aliens. We are exiles in this world. And yet, while we may be cast aside by the world and they go on building without us, we can rest assured that God is using the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God is using the things that appear foolish to the world to shame the wise. 1 Corinthians 1.18 makes this so clear. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Jane knew that. She knew that it all appeared as folly. But she also knew this gospel of grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone was the power of God. It was not only worth living for, it was worth dying for. Christ died for her. Why should she not, if needed, die for him? Not to atone for sin as he did, but to express an allegiance that transcends the folly of this world. To communicate that she lives for another world. No, Jane's death was not a waste. Only those that would say a waste are the ones that misunderstand it. Her death communicated the greatest of realities that are so easy to forget in the day-to-day din of realities. But what about this idea in the world that tells us that it is unloving, intolerant, misguided to believe that Christ alone is the only way to salvation? What about that? What about those of that uh, think that there are many roads that lead to the top of the mountain, many rooms in the mansion, many countries on the continent of salvation. Surely in a gathering this size, there are those that believe that and think that. There are some who think that those of us that believe that Christ alone is the way to salvation and salvation is found in no other name. Some think that that we are arrogant, that we are narrow-minded, that we are old-fashioned, that we are progressive or not progressive. And so is it? Is it arrogant to believe that Christ alone is the way to salvation? Well, I would respond with this question. Is it narrow or arrogant to believe that one and one only makes two? 
course not. Because we know that it's true. One and one can never make three or four or ten. We know that that's not arrogant to say that one and one only can make two. It's no arrogant to say that one and one only make two more, or any more than it is to say that it's arrogant to say that I'm wearing brown shoes, right? It just is. We recognize it's the way things are. So in the same way, if it's true that what Scripture teaches is true, that there is no name, no way of to salvation but through Christ alone, if that is true like one and one only equals two is true, it is neither narrow-minded or arrogant to say that it is so. It's simply stating things as they are. So the question then is not, is not are Christians arrogant for believing there's only one way to salvation? The question is, is it true? Because if it is, then it is not only not arrogant to say that, it would be downright unloving of me if I didn't tell you that it was so. If Christ is both Lord and King, if He has, as He says, made the way to God through an atoning sacrifice for our sin on the cross, made a way for new life through the resurrection, if that's true, and I know it's true, I would be a monster if I didn't tell you. And friends, that's exactly what I'm doing this morning. That's exactly what I'm doing. That's what I'm doing. I'm telling you that the gospel is true. I am pleading with you to trust in Christ alone for salvation. I'm pleading with you in love to not trust your ability to, do, to be a good person, to be sincere in whatever you believe as the way to God. I'm pleading with you by showing you from the word of the Lord that there's no other name given among men by which you must be saved. And you must be saved. I'm pleading with you to believe that in love. I'm calling you to that. And there are places in the world today. I watched a video just yesterday in the Amazon. There are places in the world today that have never even heard it. I'm pleading with you to believe it. And you say, well, what about them, Nathan? Well, listen, we can deal with that, but you're hearing it now. Repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. I'm joining the voice of Peter some 2,000 years ago, and I'm calling you to the same thing. Do not trust yourself in any way. Trust Jesus. He alone is sufficient for salvation. There's nothing that you or I can do to make our way to God. Nothing. It's all by grace through Christ. You must trust His sacrifice alone. And like that invalid, as you do, be healed. And praise God. And if you'd like to do that, if you'd like to respond in that way, just pray to God. Pray to Him. You can do that now. Pray and just ask Him. Agree with His assessment of your life that you're broke, that you're sinful. You've assaulted His throne through your pride, through your sin. Agree with Him in that. And say, God, I turn away from that. And I say, I have no hope but Jesus. Save me. Forgive me. That I might be born again to a new and living hope. Say that. And tell somebody we would walk with you in a new life. But for those of you that have already said that, that have already prayed that prayer, that already believe that, a couple words, brief words of counsel for you. First off, by grace through faith, trust and treasure Christ alone for your justification and your sanctification. Trust and treasure Christ alone for your justification and for your sanctification. Now, some of you are saying, Get, I already knew that, Nathan. Why are you telling me that? Well, here's the thing. I think many of you know that with your heads, but I don't know that many of you believe that and have it operational in your hearts. 
This is true for me. I mean, this is true for me. I struggle with this myself. I am convinced that if I can say just the right thing to get my son to hit a fastball, then he'll do it. Right? It doesn't work. And I just stand there frustrated. Right? Sometimes I'm convinced that if I can just preach just the right thing, if we do a sermon series on this, we're going to fix all those things. What a foolish thing to think. Now, God uses that, but I've got to trust Jesus to work it out in me. I've got to trust Jesus to work it out in you. You've got to trust Jesus in the same way. Trust Him alone. These things are not operational. Let me give you a few questions of evaluation. Does your understanding of God's love for you fluctuate with your performance? Do you feel as though God loves you more when you read your Bible and when you pray? And do you feel as though God loves you less because you looked at porn? Or because you neglected to share the gospel with that person? Well, if you do, then you're not trusting Christ alone. Do you feel as though God's favor in your life is high when things are going good, just the way you want them to? And do you feel as though God is mad at you when things are not going good? Then you're not trusting Christ alone. We put too much hope in ourselves to make things good or bad or right or wrong. So one of the most critical doctrines in the Christian faith, guys, is this idea of union with Christ. As Christians, we are who we are in Christ Jesus. All that Christ is and has done is all that we are and has been done for us. If Christ is loved by the Father, then since Christ is love, Christ is in us, then we are loved by the Father in the same way. God's love for His Son does not wax or wane. It remains full all the time. And so therefore, if Christ is in us, His love for us remains the same all the time. Christ's righteousness has become our righteousness. It's not our, we had nothing to do with our righteousness. It's all His. It remains the same. Christ's authority to bind and loose has become our authority as ambassadors of Christ to bind and loose in the church. Just a couple examples of this. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I that lives, but it is Christ that lives in me. Romans 6, 4. We, that's the Christians, were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, here it goes, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. So Christian, your new life Your rebirth came by the grace of God to you in Christ. You did not earn it in any way. Like a prince who marries a pauper, all that is his is now completely yours. And it can never be taken away. God is only oriented to you, beloved, by what he sees in his son. This is what it means to be in Christ. So you can stop beating yourself up for all of your failures. You can stop wondering if God loves you. You can stop boasting in all that you've done and be humble. You can stop trying to earn the favor of your fellow man. And you can stop being beaten down by the God of this world that teaches you lies day in and day out. By simply trusting Christ alone for your salvation and your eternal reward. He is now your identity. You have been buried with Christ and raised with Christ. Or as Paul says it so well in Colossians 3.2, you died in your life is now hidden with Christ in God. That's true of you, Christian. Trust Christ alone. Your growth in Christ, or lack thereof, doesn't contribute any more or less to God's love for you. 
That, that's a, you, got, you need to hear that again. We don't believe that a lot. We, we, we know it with our heads, but it's not working down here sometimes. God's love for you does not wax and wane with your performance. In Christ, you're complete. You're loved fully. That's why the Bible talks so often about the steadfast love of God. Like it's steadfast. It just keeps going. It doesn't go like this. Because you are who you are in Christ. Now we need to ask the question, Jesus is our salvation. He is our justification. Does that mean that we are perfect? That we have no work to do? Does that mean that we're a completed work? Of course not. Guys, you know, I spend 10 minutes with me. You'll see I'm a really unimpressive guy. I mean, I'm messed up. You know, I need Jesus really bad. So my righteousness is in Christ. My righteousness is not in Nathan. Right? We've already rehearsed that. We all know ourselves well enough to know that we are still a work in progress. We are saved by grace without works, but we are saved to work. See, grace is not opposed to working. Grace is opposed to earning. In Christ, we are complete. We are justified. We are still left, though, to be sanctified. And all sanctification is, is growing up into what is already ours. An old mentor of mine used to say it like this all the time. He says, What sanctification is, is becoming in practice what you are declared to be in truth. He told us that so many times, it got a little boring. But it's so good. Becoming in practice what you're declared to be in truth. And that coming in practice begins, it begins, it begins the same way our justification began. By faith, by trusting, not in ourselves, but trusting in Jesus alone to work in our salvation as He works in us, in our sanctification as he works in us for his good pleasure we work out he works in we trust him in the midst of it and so as you trusted christ alone for your justification trust christ alone for your sanctification and as you work as you labor trust him throughout it all we are saved by faith in christ and we become sanctified by faith in christ and if you never lose sight of who you are in him you will live in the power of the gospel and the world will not be able to touch you i promise you that Final word, even more brief. Trust Christ alone for your justification and sanctification and trust Christ alone for your evangelization. Just think about the testimony of Jane Gray on that scaffolding. What an amazing testimony. Her faith in Christ was so great that she was unwilling to renounce it, even though it may have preserved her life. And instead, she chose to speak of her faith in Christ alone for salvation to not only her hearers who were there on that day, But she speaks to you today. Calling people to a great love in Christ Jesus. And even look look back in Acts chapter 4. Look at how Peter responds. Chapter 4 verse 19. They're thrown in jail. They're warned to stop speaking the gospel. And Peter responds. I love this. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. (laughs) But for us, for we cannot but speak. Of what we have seen and heard. We cannot but speak of what we have seen or heard. Peter is saying that what Peter, Peter is saying that what Paul later said, that we are so constrained by the love of God, we can't help but preach this gospel. Do with us what you got to. Do with you what you got to. I got to preach this. Do with me. Just do whatever you need to do. I'm preaching the gospel. I'm constrained. I'm compelled by the love of God. Threats and even death itself cannot stop us from advancing the message of this glorious gospel. And so, beloved, 
Are you so compelled by the love of Christ to share the gospel as they were? Well, if you're not, rehearse it daily to yourself, day after day, and be reminded of its love, its power, and its glory. And move out towards your neighbor and towards the nations and declare that what God has done in Christ Jesus is able to save. Call them to stop, to stop trusting in themselves for joy and salvation, but instead tell them to trust Christ in Him alone for forgiveness and new life. Friends, too many of the, our family members and friends and neighbors and coworkers have never heard or understood this message of grace in Christ for salvation alone. Just ask them what they believe to be saved. Just ask them and see what comes back. Rarely, if ever, will you hear anyone say, I need an unblemished sacrifice because I'm broken. They'll never say that. What they're going to tell you is something that they need to do. This is why you have to plead with them to see Christ alone for salvation. Go and tell them of the power of Christ and be willing to be rejected just as your Savior was. And if you shudder in fear at such a thought, take heart in that 16-year-old girl. And if that's not enough, most importantly, look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Remember, beloved, you preach in a graveyard. Your responsibility is to preach. God's responsibility is to raise the dead. Never forget that. The power is in the gospel. It's not ultimately in you. Be encouraged. And go trust Him alone. Spread this glorious news. And watch what He does. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, we thank You for such a glorious gospel. Thank you for the example of our sister Jane. Thank you most of all for Christ. He is all we have. He is our only hope. Teach us to trust Him. Let us not lean upon our own education, but let it be said of us that we were known for being with Jesus. And we are so compelled to live inside of Him and to spread Him to the ends of the world, telling that there's no other hope in salvation but Jesus. And where we do trust in other things, in ourselves and other people, may we trust in Jesus alone. Forgive us where we do trust in ourselves or our circumstances. Change us by the power of your grace for your glory that Christ may be exalted in all the ends of the earth. And God, we plead that you would send missionaries to the places of people who have never heard. Thank you, God, for those among us that have already done that. Send more. Thank you for this gospel. We love you, God. And thank you that you completely love us because you completely love your son who is in us. And we pray in his name. Amen.